From the fish-filled Midwest lakes to the deep woods of the north, upland prairies filled with pheasants to the whistling wings of duck ponds, this is Saturday Morning Fan Outdoors, your show for hunting and fishing tips, topics, and conversations. You can also send us a question or opinion by emailing us, booth at kfan.com. Here's your host, the fan's Captain Billy Hildebrand. I'm on Eight seconds before the hour of six o'clock on a fan outdoors Saturday morning. Good morning, everybody. Yes, congratulations. You have made it to Saturday, and it's all good. It's all good. Well, my very good buddy here is just in a... He's got he's got the shakes today. <laughs> I mean, he is just literally shaking it's, from head to toe. It's not just any Saturday, Captain. Yeah, he has got the shakes. I mean, he's walking around with two shotgun shells in his hand and wondering where to put them. <laughs> and I can't tell him not on public radio, not on the fan. <laughs> but um, no, it is and. Well, Bob St. Pierre of Pheasants Forever, what day is this? This is the 2017 Minnesota Rough Grouse Hunting Opener. Oh, and it's also archery whitetail opener too. <laughs> there might be a few. There might be a few people interested in that. Uh, but it's the, uh, you know, yes, yes, we've had goose season and dove season and bear season, but captain. Captain, this is the, this this today is the beginning. This is what, it is no longer the off season. That's true. Let's get it on. (laughs) Yeah, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Well, how do you follow that? (laughs) I I know of nothing that will. And, And we got Ducks coming next weekend, and we are one month away, little little less than one month away from yep. pheasant opener. We uh, uh, all is writing itself with the world right I now. See, well that's good. Like the leaves are changing. The only thing wrong, yes, is it was seventy seven degrees on the vehicle uh, therm- thermostat when I was coming in this morning. Well, it's a little I- bit. A little bit steamy for a grouse hunt today. On on my temperature on my truck, as I look at the dash, it showed 79 degrees yeah. coming down from the North Metro. Jeez. This the 16th day of February. Um, and in looking at the app on my phone, the weather app, it says the high today is 76. Now, <laughs> go figure that <laughs> one. Huh? Yeah, something's amiss. And I'm looking at uh, DNR's website to remind me that it is also rabbit opener, yep. squirrel opener, yep. sandhill crane opener, uh, sharp tail opener, 
spruce grouse opener and Hungarian partridge opener. And some of those species you will not find, but it's actually, gonna be hard. Hard to find a few of those. Huns, yeah. spruces, sharpies. Yeah, go all the way to the northwest for the cranes yeah. uh to be legal. But um rabbits and squirrels and grouse and oh deer. My. Oh my. <laughs> oh my and I know. I know. Are, I don't get to talk a lot. Um, that's because you have. A cold are, are you? Are you excited? You need a, a license or anything to hunt a squirrel? Absolutely. Yes, you do. Like you can't just go out in the backyard with a pellet gun and just <laughs> squirrels are gone. Well, it de- <laughs> it depends where your backyard Legally, is. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody may come and haul you away if you're in uh, Minnetonka or something. All right. <laughs> Um, and but that's you've talked about wanting to hunt squirrels for a long time. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I have, I have grown up, but I haven't really done it uh, recently. I'm, I'm mostly interested, uh, or I talk about it every winter after the bird season, and oh, it's yeah. getting back into uh, rabbit hunting. Um, but that's all in the back seat right now, Captain. <laughs> There's feathers to chase, my friend. There's and, oh, and, and I'm a miss. I, woodcock season opens yes. next weekend, yep. so and that's a migratory bird. So yep, yep. So you folks that are that do get out today for grouse, do not shoot woodcock today. You got to wait a week. Yep. And if you're an archer, 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 archer. Or you're going out for the archery season and you do waylay a deer, take a look at the regs on the Minnesota DNR website because they are the most current when it comes to all the rules and regulations, especially the CWD issues that are facing Minnesota. And some of the areas that are open do not require testing. But some of them require mandatory testing, and the head boxes down in Area 603 down southeast Minnesota where CWD has been found are out, and they require your participation. And everybody, any, any, any hunter out there should want to participate and hopefully nip this issue in the bud. Well, I know our, the, the bow hunters out there, how, I just avoided saying archers, um, the bow hunters out there, um, you know, make sure you take a, a very good shot today because if you, um, if you wound an animal, um, with the temperatures they wait, the way they are, um, that, that meat's going to spoil pretty quickly if you don't find that animal. So make sure you, you double lung it. Well, and one other thing, I was up to the lake mowing on Monday of this last week. Let it go, Captain. Let yeah. that grass grow. Forget about it. Oh, um, it's the cabin. It's well, fall. There is a brand new crop of mosquitoes. Oh, I thought you were going to say mushrooms. No, Chicken of the woods, hen of the woods, mosquitoes, huh? Uh, they, and they carry they away. Ravenous. Mm-hmm. I got out of the car, air-conditioned vehicle into some warmer weather, and I hadn't been. I hadn't walked to the shed, which is only about twenty-five feet away, and I had mosquitoes lined up, feasting on my <laughs> arms, on my neck, on my legs, and my calf. I'm doing a little dance out there, trying to get these buggers off. And I had. I hadn't been out a minute. I mean, it's amazing. But if you're standing in a stand. 
Yeah. Oh, you're. It's hot today, and you're walking through the woods. Mm-hmm. It, it it could be a little irritating. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't. We really haven't had anything close to a frost. No. Up. Uh, I think way up north in International Falls, they approached it um, maybe two weeks ago. But well, we had some cool weather, which knocked them back. Yeah, but um, now we got water and moisture too. And yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of it on the landscape. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things, Eric and the DNR, well, he got it from the DNR folks that do wolf management, and they wear a, a bug jacket, hmm. which is basically no seam netting mm-hmm. that's woven around a real light jacket, and it's got a hood on it that you can tuck into the collar, and it's incredibly effective. Um, and they actually, it was actually designed for bow hunters and down in Alabama, I believe, but it, it's, they make a camel one also, but it's, it's pretty slick, hmm. pretty slick for early season where it's difficult to dress cool enough. Speaking of camel, you have officially turned the page on I, summer. You're wearing, you're wearing a camel fleece jacket this morning. You're ready to go duck hunting. I, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, but as we spoke earlier, I, this, I won't be able to for a few weeks and, um, I've spent the last three days in the hospital as a visitor, but it makes you appreciate your, your health. Yeah. And everybody out there, if you, if you have your health, don't take it for granted because it's, it's pretty special. And thank God there are docs out there that do surgeries and can, can take apart and repair the human body because it's uh, crucial. Yeah. And I have utmost respect for them. Well, we don't have to get into the details, but for all mm. all things are going well on on that front for yep. for your perspective. So yep, it is. So. Uh, it's just a matter of rehabbing now. I hope. Yeah. And it'll be a period of time, but we this too will pass, yeah. and we'll get through it. Um, but it does nip in the bud some of my. Some of my walking with the dogs. <laughs> feel. Well, I noticed you are clean shaven. You have a fresh haircut. Uh, you you don't look like you've been in the field scouting. I'm starting to get a little bit nervous for the opener, pheasant opener, but we still have time for you to I, get things in place. And, you know, and I have been out, and the actually the Minnesota pheasant map is put together by a man that I know in the DNR, hmm. and we have hunted with him. And uh, he he said, and in spite of what the reports are, you're going to look at a map of the hot areas, and people have a tendency to go where they think all the birds are. Mm-hmm. There are pockets of birds out there. Sure. You just need to get out and put some leather on the ground, and, and you're going to have to work a bit for them. Um, but it, there, are, there are birds, and... There aren't as many. You're not just going to walk out and get out of the car, and they're going to jump up in front of you and say, hey, shoot me now. <laughs> they don't even do that in South Dakota. I as, found that yeah. out. <laughs> it's still hunting. It is hunting, and it needs to be hunting. Mm-hmm. And if people are disenchanted because you know they're not filling their bag all the time. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of the expectation with the grouse opener this weekend with the drumming counts, you know, through the roof this year that, you know, it's, it's somehow going to be easy 
today and tomorrow and in it's a uh it's a jungle out there right yeah. now the leaves are in um you know full you go a little bit further north and they're starting to change but uh one grouse in hand is still a trophy particularly on the opener but what i love about the opener for grouse hunting is you can you, it you doesn't ground swat them, right? What's that? Ground swat, ground swat, ground swat them. No, I don't do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> anymore. You know, well, you know, as, as a youngster in the UP, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be hypocritical. Now, what does John Devney's dad say of Delta Waterfall? I uh, let's see. Never ever shoot a duck on the water. Yep. Never shoot a pheasant in the ditch. But shoot every darn grouse you lay your eyes. <laughs> right, any way you can shoot them. Anyway. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. So you had me going in a different tangent, but the beauty of the grouse opener is you do get uh, those multi-flushes, right? So that for the next couple weeks, birds are still together, grouped together in, in units. And I've just had some spectacular openers where, you know, you, you're standing there with an empty shotgun reloaded, empty again. You may not have anything, but, you know, you just witness nine flushes in a matter of 10 seconds, you know, and that is just heart pounding excitement. Uh, okay, here's kind of a touchy subject for some people, and I think it would be for you too. Ooh. And with grouse hunting, especially, one of the, the rubs are the number of four-wheelers that are out there mm. with people hunting from four-wheelers mm -hmm. and just cruising trails. Does that irritate you from time to time? Sure it does. I mean, I know, I mean, it, it, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, there are tons of folks, a lot of friends that I knew growing up that uh, hunted off their four-wheelers. You know, legally, they had a gun in the case and ride the four-wheeler, see a grouse, turn it off, get out, and go find it. Um, irritating, maybe. Um, but you know what? What I I guess I um, am more concerned about is when they're zipping through and you are out on a trail with your dog, and and you know you have some those dangerous um, where they're going too fast. Yeah. Um, you know, and and come up on you quick or on your dog, and um, that's something where you just wish they'd be. Um, a little bit more mindful. Not not everybody's like that, but uh, I guess if if you are out there four wheeling today and just take it easy a little bit, especially if you're coming around a corner, you never know what's going to be on the other side. And um, I haven't had any significant problems from that perspective. But you know that's that's one reason I bring a GPS. You know you're out in an area that's he heavily used by ATVs. Dive in the woods. Well, I would guess that they have, they must push grouse off the trails too. Don't uh, they? I don't think they. Well, they probably do just for when they go by. But I don't. It's like, you know, I was uh, listening to the radio barbecuing in the backyard yesterday, and a white tail's like a hundred yards away. You know, they kind of get used to some of those things. Well, I think that's different in the cities. Yeah, and, and if it's a trail. <laughs> I just so I, it, growing, your yard is basically set up because the the a fawn would get lost in the backyard. They could bed down there, and nobody ever bought in our yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the with the pollinator plots and the meadows in yeah. the backyard. But I was thinking, as a kid in the UP, my dad was listening to Pink Floyd one day. Oh God! And uh, we had like 
it deer after we had eight deer in our backyard come just randomly come while he was playing Pink Floyd and barbecue. Like, what is going on? And we were in the middle of the woods. <laughs> Apparently, you know, that's kind of a whitetail call is Pink Floyd. Well, as is building a little fire when you're deer hunting too to warm up or something, a little fire. How many cartoons have you seen of the guy yeah. looking over his shoulder with the deer coming? Right, right. Hey, we'll take a pause, and we will be back. And just to let everybody know, this is a stand tequila kind of Saturday, so it uh, won't be too long. We'll be chatting with Stan of NatureSmart.com. Um, we've got some topics to broach, but, you know, it's all about you. So 651-989-5326, 800-320-5326. It's toll-free. It means it's just free. Booth at KFAN.com, Bradshaw and Bryant Inbox brings you to me, and we will be right back. When I was a young boy, my mama said to me, there's only one girl in this world for you, and she probably lives in Tahiti. He thinks he's really cute. <laughs> it's not, I think. <laughs> so what do you think, Captain? Did you like this one? The second. My hair is burning! My hair is burning! <laughs> Turn that off. It's awful. Do you realize that? Oh, no. Yeah. You don't like this one? It doesn't say anything. <laughs> this is actually the most polite song they have. I know. So. <laughs> I, 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 it's your show. I'm done. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about upland birds this morning. Then, first, you're going to teach me what an upland bird is. You are listening to Cage the Elephant this morning, folks. And I can guarantee you, if you ever ride with me, you will never listen to that garbage at all. Well, thank you, Tony. I appreciate the Cage the Elephant. And I don't. Morning. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Every once in a while, he gets one song he wants. That's it. Nine and a half years that I get now one it's, song. Um, it's Darius Rucker next and Wagon oh. Wheel. <laughs> I actually love that song, so I can do that. Uh, how about the old Crow Medicine Show version of it? No, no, Darius. It's a, it's a really good show. I can watch him grimace. <laughs> hey, Tony is out in the blind waiting for, uh, he's waiting to waylay one of the brown gals. And good morning to you, Tony. Uh, let's And thanks also for the email. Appreciate that. Nice to know folks are listening out there, too. And let's go, uh, Nick is in Stillwater and has some deer hunting discussion. Deer, Nick, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. How are we doing? Not bad, man. How are you? Not too shabby. Just out cutting some grass at a local golf course here. Ooh. <laughs> are, the geese, are the geese sitting on it? You know, there's some ducks on the pond, and you can see them flying by going 90 miles an hour here with all this wind. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just calling in. I was out moseying around the woods yesterday, and I've seen some uh, some scrapes and some rubs on trees and whatnot, and I just wonder what you guys' thoughts are with that. You think we're still rubbing velvet off, or... Boy, you think we got a pre-run. Well, I, I think that, and I've heard that from other folks, too. Uh, Nick, that there are scrapes beginning. In fact, I think Lou said that he had a, uh, hmm. Cornicelli said that he had a scrape in his backyard already. So, uh, he, they're, uh, 
the hormones are beginning to run. And yeah. it might it might be a little early, but they're beginning to move forward. And I think that if we get some cool weather, um, it's going to start things off too. At least for some of the some of the animals, whether they're big or little, I won't know. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, there's quite a few of them running around. So it's a good thing, though. You know, today's the opener for archery, and you got these fellas out there sitting in a tree somewhere waiting for them to walk by. So. Yep. And they're getting bit up, too, I'll bet. No, I'll bet you're right. But there's all this wind out here now. I That's a know, good point. Uh, hmm. That's a yeah, good point. So. Well, keep keep the lines nice and straight, Tony, and uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, bud. Uh, that's not Tony, that's Nick, and he is off. So, um, yeah, he's mowing in the dark, too. Yeah, I was looking, you know, it's still, it's not like it was two months ago. No, it's dark out there. No, it is dark. Um, hey, you know, I, I, I said something off air to you a little bit, and, one of the things that seems to make a a bit of a difference to me, and it's just my opinion, I'll mind you. Oh, are we going there already? We might. You just wound up already. I, you know, I might. I have not had a lot of sleep, so this is probably a good topic. Um, <laughs> Clear the lanes, folks. <laughs> Captain's winding himself up. Well, you know, and it is. It's just. It's again. It's a concern that I have, and it's coming from an angler's perspective who's been around the block about eighteen times. And uh, I get I get wrapped up a little bit by Lakeshore associations, and and I belong to one. You know, let's preface it with that. I I am a member of the Sock Lake Association, the Lakeshore Association, and I I pay my dues, and I I want to know what's going on, and it's a pretty good source of information. But in Wright County, the invasive species proposal that's put forth and worked on and suggested by that. Lakeshore Association. Which Lakeshore Association? Um, it is, gosh, it's around by Buffalo, but there are three lakes involved. Hmm. Okay. And uh, let's see. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't write that down. There, are, but three lakes that I would never go. Three to. lakes in Wright County. Lake John, who lives on Lake John, and. Said it didn't. Well, whatever. But there's a there's a couple of there's three lakes total, and two of them already have invasive species. Two of them have uh, Eurasian milfoil in it, hmm. and one of them has, in addition to Eurasian milfoil, it has spiny water fleas already. Okay, what their proposal is before anybody can launch and put their boat in this lake, they have to go through. A cleaning period or a cleaning station. Yeah, with their boat off the water in Buffalo or someplace, wherever it is. Hmm. Now, the fallacy I believe that is here is that the biggest one, they require everybody to clean it before they enter the lake because they're concerned about invasive species, of which two of the lakes already have them, two of the three. But they don't require cleaning when they leave. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because to say that we're concerned about invasive species, if you could give a damn if, they, if they're spread from that lake to other lakes by not cleaning. Well, they said they hadn't been able to work that process out yet. 
Well, you dang well worked the process out before people came in. Mm. So you can't work it out. And they got a big grant to do this, too. Mm. Now, the, the thing that I don't understand is I've never, ever heard anybody in government or in enforcement tell these people that public, the public part of public waters of which these are that, means what? Public, I would think, is pretty much everybody. But that's just me. It doesn't say owned by the Lakeshore Association who determine the rules and regulations of that particular body of water. It means public water, which means everybody should have responsibility, shared responsibility, whether you choose to own property bordering it, an emphasis on bordering it, you own it to the high water mark, when it gets into the water, the water is public. So if you wanted to access some property, you can walk in, not property, but you want to access a lake, you can walk down in the water all the way around the lake. And no, and people go into public water duck hunting and wander in or put their boat in off a road ditch and mm-hmm. go in. And it's totally okay. You don't own the bodies of water. That being said, I know what you had said was people should be concerned about this more. And if they have a body of water that they live on, that's, you know, maybe there's an implied vested interest. Right. So I get where you're coming from. Like, um, it's public. And I'm a huge advocate for public land, public water. But uh, I do see the perspective that if you, you live there, you have a vested interest in trying to protect it. Right. Right. I understand. Both from a, maybe from a financial perspective, but also from a caring perspective. You probably care about that body of water. Like, you care about Sock Lake more than I do, right? Yeah. Because you, you live there. So, so the, there's a balance there that is hard to find. But you, I could never limit people from coming on it. No, but you want to try, you, you want to do more to protect that body of water's health. I I voice a concern. Right. I have the same, but I have the same clout as anybody with concern for that particular body of water. My concern comes from growing up in that area, of being on it and spending some time, although a lot less time than I used to. Yeah, but you, I mean, you love it. I, I I enjoy being on the shores of a lake. I enjoy the solitude that it affords me. I pay a substantial, I pay more taxes up there than I do on my home in the city. Yeah. But that's my choice. I have the option of selling that to somebody else, appreciating the profits, having put spent the money before. And granted, it'd be worth more if the lake was in better shape, but I have no ownership. I have no more ownership than you do of that body of water. Right. But I'm just waiting for people to, somebody with authority to come and say, hey, man, back off. That's public waters. You can't be regulating that and acknowledge that you're regulating it. Acknowledge that Lakeshore Association, one of the members said, mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to keep boats from going on, but right. I don't care. Right. Well, you should care. Yeah, that's where it's a little bit of a shell game, right? It's like, well, <laughs> they, they're definitely a attempt here 
to limit the number of people right. using them. And I know that's the that's a guise that they try to come up with. Mm-hmm. Christmas Lake, and aside from Minnetonka, they went through the same crap, and and they tried to pull the same stuff, limiting access to save it from CWD and save it from zebra mussels right across the road. Um, the, the the downfall is you risk alienating people to the point that somebody is going to say in the darkness of the night, screw you, and they're going to have a coffee can in full of zebra mussels, walk across a road just out of spite, and it's illegal, and dump them in the body of water and say to them, okay, buddy, you're limiting the access to this because you don't want them here. Here they are. Love it now, sucker. Yeah, that's... Obviously, that's a horrible place to take that. It is, <laughs> you know, you know that's that's the kind of thing that uh, I, it, the parallel for me is um, thinking about people that um, hate wolves, right? And I encountered this right in Wisconsin a few years ago, where um, people laced um, meat oh. with nails to try to get wolves to eat it and kill them and unfortunately my dog ended up in that and it caused all sorts of problems but it's like boy when you take things at angry um perspective to that extent where you're hurting extremes will do that holy mackerel that's terrible extreme attitudes will create that and that's unfortunate yeah so Wright county i think you're way offline i really do we're going to take a pause we'll be back with mr stan tequila Mr. Stan next, and we have some topics, and he's going to have answers. Here. Are we going Shrewman, Captain? Are we going to talk fungi? Well, people got to hold on. We'll be right back. Right. We'll find out. All right. Stan Tequila next on Fan Outdoors. Hold on. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Fan Outdoors. Joined now by author, naturalist, and photographer Stan Tequila. Whether it's in Minnesota, Alaska, or Africa, he's always in search of all things wild and natural. He may even know more about animals than they do themselves. (laughs) And you thought the cat knew the outdoors. Here's fan favorite Stan Tequila on Fan Outdoors. And he makes his grand exit from stage right, kind of bouncing onto the stage and spreads his arms wide and says, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here! (laughs) Good morning, Stan. Oh, my. Good morning, Bill. How you doing? Not bad, buddy. How are you? <laughs> doing good. Doing good. Who are you, who are you with today? I am with Bob, but in body only. In mind, he's long gone from here. <laughs> Which isn't out of the ordinary. No, it's not. <laughs> um, oh, hey, Bob. How you doing? Good morning, Stan. Stan, it's going to be, well, 80-plus degrees today. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my nature is. Does that change anything as far as what behaviors are going on out there? Well, I think what what the warm temperatures that we're seeing now at uh, mid September is um, a kind of it does influence cer- certain things. For example. Um, uh, it seems like we have a lot more bugs now than we've than we've ever had before. I don't know yeah. if you've been out in the woods in the last week. The mosquitoes are horrendous, Ugh. and uh, and so I think they're thriving just fine doing that. Um, and they're and they'll continue to thrive just fine in these warmer temperatures uh, as you know as we move through September. It's also affecting things like uh, the growth of a lot of the mushrooms. Uh, that are that are popping up at this time of year. Uh, that they they need a key ingredient of rain and then some fairly decent temperatures for them to fruit uh, and produce these mushrooms. And that's a big part of uh, uh, what's going on right now. Also, uh, hey Stan, I had a chicken of the woods, a giant one growing on the side of one tree last year, or the year before. Yeah, never been there before, and I I uh, I searched one of our friends. Sent him a picture and he said, "Oh yeah, that's edible. That's a good one." Mm-hmm. And yeah, it didn't do much for me. I tried it, <laughs> but did you try it? I did try it. I believed him. I said, "My life is in your hands," because he's also the guy that said, "Well, if you eat the wrong one, your you know your liver shuts down and everything begins to quit off and you die." Mm-hmm. I go, yeah. Well, that's not a real positive choice. I think I'll just yeah. stick with McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you brought this up because this this is really the time of year. Late August and September is kind of some of the best mushroom hunting uh, that you can find, uh, you know, any time of year. Most people are familiar with the morel mushroom, which is the one that's found that's found in the springtime. That's uh, you know, it's a small, uh, smaller mushroom uh, that uh, a lot of people go for. But at this time of year, you can find uh, larger. Uh, I believe a lot more tasty, a lot better, uh, you know, uh, chances of finding uh, these other fall mushrooms. Uh, there, there's a, there, I did a book about 25 years ago uh, on edible mushrooms called the Safe Six. Hmm. So these are six common edible mushrooms that you can uh, safely hunt and uh, and hopefully not kill yourself. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> And that and that is a trick, you know, because you, <laughs> there's a possibility of, of of these types of things. Let's put this in perspective. There are approximately five million species of of fungi in the world. Five million. This huh. is crazy. These are that's like astronomical numbers. By comparison, uh, about five thousand species of mammal, about ten thousand species of birds. And we have fungi, five million. You know, so there's there's a lot. Now, granted, a lot of them are really small, inconspicuous. You don't see them. You know, that type of thing. Uh, but there's still a, a, a it's a daunting task, uh, and nobody can really be a true expert on all mushrooms. It just doesn't work that way. But if you're going to go out and look for mushrooms, the most important thing to do is to understand what the heck these things are in the first place. What is a mushroom? What is a fungi? Uh, is, the, is the name fungi and mushroom interchangeable? You know, there's a lot of questions I think that people have about, uh, about this. And I thought maybe this morning we could kind of go over a few of those things and uh, kind of, because you know what it is. When you, look, the better you know white-tailed deer, the more you know about their habits and you know their their behaviors and things like that, the better hunter you are, right? For for deer, sure. same thing, 
Same thing with the fungi. Uh, the, the more you know about it, the more you understand it, the better off you're going to be and hopefully keep you safe um, because it, it, it can be a deadly prospect if you go the wrong direction. Well, so, Stan, but ahead. 5 million of them... I mean, we could work for a long time on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I did a book with just six. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a lot of room to cover you, and that's probably a good plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, let's let's start with what the heck is a fungi or or a mushroom, um, and that let's just get some basics down. And um, I'd like to try to make an analogy to an apple tree. So everybody from, is familiar with an apple tree. Okay, you got roots that are underground. You got a you know trunk and branches, right? You get leaves on it, and then you've got the apples. So what happens is is that tree is living all the time, right? But at uh, it, at the end of the year, it produces an apple, uh, that edible apple that's on the branch. Uh, inside that apple is the seed. So the so we say in the biological world we say that that is the fruiting body the apple is the fruiting body of that tree inside that apple are the seeds that's how the tree reproduces you know it entices an animal to eat the apple transports those seeds to another location inside their body you know you poop it out and boom a new tree is growing so it's 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 really an effective way to be able to transport your your seeds around, right? Now, with fungi, we have to, first and <laughs> foremost, we have to understand that they are not plants, okay? We have, we have, they're not, they're not a plant. And to refer to a mushroom or a fungi as a plant is incorrect. Uh, they're completely, totally different types of organisms. And, um, what you've got is most fungi, I'm going to start, I'm going to start by using that term. Most fungi look like a bunch of white thread either in the soil or inside of wood and they do they basically do the same types of things they break things down they're saprophytic in that they break down dead you know uh, material out there and so the fungi they, they estimate that every square inch of soil has some kind of fungi growing in it hmm. and and most of our fallen dead trees have some kind of fungi growing in them too different species Huh. And so those, the, so the analogy is the tree part is this underground or in the wood white fibrous thing. All right, oh, same I see. exact, okay. same exact thing. Right. Yeah. And then when we have the right conditions, we have the right temperatures, and we have the right moisture, the fungi then sends up a fruiting body. Hmm. Hence the mushroom. So it may be a morel, it may be that chicken in the woods or a hen in the woods or all these different types that are growing. And that mushroom, that morel mushroom or that uh, uh, sulfur shelf mushroom or whatever it is, is the fruiting body. And from that mushroom comes uh, spores. And that's how it reproduces. The spores float away on the wind and they, um, you know, it reproduces somewhere else. So it's the same exact thing. So, so, and you, you're going, well, okay, that, how does that help me? Think about it. If you were to go up and pick an apple off an apple tree, you don't walk up to the apple tree and break off the entire branch. You know, you don't just yank on the whole thing and break off a branch. The same thing when you're out collecting mushrooms. You don't walk up to a morel or to a, uh, you know, any other mushroom and just pull it out of the ground. 
you you should be cutting it off because if you pull it out of the ground, you've actually damaged the fungi itself that's growing under the ground uh, or in the wood, that type of thing. So right away we've learned something about how to go out and start to collect these things. We want to collect them with a sharp knife and be able to cut them off at the base and be able to then preserve the, the organism, the fungi that's growing there and doing its job. Well, Stan, some of the, like this chicken of the woods that I did find, I have never, in 50 years, I've never seen that in that area, and I haven't seen it since. If okay. the organism is growing, is it just that the conditions weren't right? Okay, so yes and no. <laughs> the, um, you're <laughs> oh. referring to yeah, the, the chicken of the woods is um, uh, Leporius sulfurius. This is a large shelf type fungi. It can be huge. It can be, you know, a couple of feet by a couple of feet. And it's bright orange on top and sulfur yellow on the bottom. And that, they, that fungi is saprophytic in that it breaks down uh, decaying wood. So we think of these fungi, they are the frontline recyclers. Every single tree that has ever fallen in the forest, if, it didn't, if we didn't have these fungi, they'd still be laying there hundreds of years later. <laughs> but what the fungi do is it breaks it down, breaks down that wood, and returns the nutrients to the soils so that a new tree can use those uh, nutrients to help grow. And that fungi, that, that, that chicken in the woods, is in, the, in that trunk, and if it doesn't have the right growing conditions, i.e. temperature and moisture, it won't send up a fruiting body. Oh. And so it's there, it's just you're not seeing it. Stan, we have to take a pause. You okay holding on? I'll bet. Excellent. <laughs> of course. Hmm. <laughs> All right. And also, I've got an email from Bobby that came into the uh, Bradshaw and Brian inbox uh, about Robbinsville. Attach will uh, get because he asked for uh, Stan's answer on that. It's a debate that's raging on in his world, hmm. and we'll continue that. We'll continue some mushroom talk with Stan. Know this though that you can find a lot of what Stan does examples and other things, books that he's written, even on mushrooms. A uh, six of them, six out of five million at naturesmart.com. When he gets the rest of the Four million, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. <laughs> He'll probably post them at naturesmart.com. We'll take a pause. Bob St. Pierre is here. Yours truly also. Tired. Bloodshot eyes. We'll be right back. Fifty-nine minutes after the hour of six o'clock on a fan outdoors kind of day, and it is the grouse opener, the archery deer opener, and once again to uh, take a look at the CWD inf- information at the DNR website. And there's some places you have to have your animal should you get one. 
tested for CWD primarily on archery season 603, but be sure you read the regs. And if you want to have any animal tested, on the back page of the regs, it tells you how to do so and where to do so at the University of Minnesota. Um, and they will help you out with that. So some people really want to have that done, and I would highly recommend it if you don't know if it's in an area that there's a prevalence possibility of CWD. The only place it's been found is down in the southeast in area 603. So Stan Tequila is our guest, and we'll bring him right into the conversation. Um, and, you know, we had we were talking about mushrooms and the 5 million fungi that are out there, of, the, of which that 5 million, Stan is an expert on all of them. <laughs> so he knows them all very intimately. So hey, just shoot him an email if you have questions about it at naturesmart.com, and he'll be happy to cook them up for you and decide if they're edible. Well, you decide, because if you drop over, you're well, not edible. That is So obviously morels are just spectacular on the on the plate, right? And I've tried pheasant backs and chicken of the woods and hen of the woods and I'm not in love with them. Are there are there mushrooms that are comparable for, you know, people absolutely love as much as morels stand? Well, um I think it all depends on who you uh ask. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me, I think uh, the hen of the woods, which is the uh, proliferous frondosus, um, is about a hundred times better than morel mushrooms. Hmm, really? Uh, yeah. For me, the morels tend to get soft and soggy and have no texture. They tend to be a little slimy. And whereas, like the uh, uh, hen of the woods, the proliferous frondosus, that that species, when you cook it, stays nice and firm. It's, uh, it's got, you know, it's got some body to it. You know, it, it actually is, uh, it feels like it's something. And, hmm. uh, it has that great, you know, mushroom taste to it. And, uh, and you can, coll- when you collect, you know, you collect it, you can get, you know, uh, a half a pound to upwards of sometimes two pounds from one mushroom. There's tons and tons of, uh, uh, of flesh there to be, you know, to be had. So, uh, it all depends on really who, on who you talk to. Uh, <clears throat> I know, most Europeans uh, eat the uh, King Belit. This is a uh, Belitus edulis. This is a big uh, hamburger bun type like top and a big thick stem. And uh, they are probably the most prized edible mushroom in the world, and yet Americans won't even look at it. Hmm. Uh, so it's, you know, it all depends on who you ask. They also uh, fish for carp as a <laughs> <high> species. <laughs> what so are the. That's, what, and that's really just a societal thing, I think, too, okay. because, you know, I've had carp. It's actually very good. Well, would you like some more? <laughs> <laughs> the the six mushrooms you profile in your book, what, what are the yeah. six? So we've got the uh, sulfur shelf. That's the one that Bill found. That's this bright orange and yellow uh, shelf-type mushroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hen of the woods, the one we just talked about, it grows at the base of oak trees. It looks like a, a kind of a crouching hen, if you will. The puffball, which is the very large, white, round... That you know, thing's edible? Thing. Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, that in, As long as it's pure white, you you uh, uh, harvest that mushroom, cut it in half. If it's pure white inside, it's still edible. 
uh, and you can do a whole variety of things with it. Of all the mushrooms, that would be my least uh, of kind of favorite, but it provides you with a lot of mushroom and, uh, you know, easy to find. And you're not going to confuse it with any poisonous lookalikes. Hmm. Um, you've got the uh, morel mushroom, obviously, and then uh, the shaggy mane, which is this one that grows in your lawn. It's white, and it turns to a black ink over time. Um, and it, they're, they're popped out right now. They're all over the place right now. Uh, so these are, these are the edibles that are, I think that was all six. I can't remember. Um, but those are the edibles that, um, are, are safe, uh, and you can't really, uh, uh, uh kind of confuse what, them with other things. What about chanterelles? So chanterelles are an outstanding edible mushroom, and they're available usually in the month of August or so. And uh, they're a bright orange uh, mushroom that are uh, uh, kind of have the um, uh, uh, the scent of uh, of apricots. Hmm. They're really they're really something. Um, they're a little harder to identify. There are several other close uh, lookalikes. Uh, to that one, and that is a little that's a little concerning when you have these close lookalikes. Yeah, so maybe, yeah. yeah, Billy's out. Yeah, I thought, I thought just... maybe we could talk a little bit about mushroom poisonings uh, because there they there's a lot of uh, of bad information out there about edible versus poisonous mushrooms. So first and foremost, if you ever hear somebody say to you, like, well, you just cook it with a silver spoon, and if a silver spoon turns black, it's not edible. <laughs> or oh, there's a million of these things. Or if you, if you oh, yeah, hummingbirds fly in the back of the geese on down south, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or uh, another one is if you taste a little tiny bit of it and it's bitter, well, then it's not edible. Oh. These are all just absolutely wrong. By the way... Every single person who ever ate a poisonous mushroom all reported it tasted great. So don't, I mean, that don't go there, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, there's a, a zillion of these types of, of, uh, of, of kind of anecdotes that are not true. None of them are true. None of them can, can determine the difference between a poisonous mushroom and a non-poisonous mushroom. By the way, if you see a squirrel or a deer eat that mushroom, it must be okay. <laughs> That's wrong because squirrels and deer can eat the most deadly of, of uh, poisonous mushrooms and have no problems with it whatsoever. So, Stan, I know dogs, in fact, um, I, I know a gal that's dog ate a mushroom and it got deathly ill and almost died as, you know, puppies will pick, grab something and just chomp it down. And it cost her a lot of money at the University of Minnesota to get the dog uh, still healed. And uh, it was near death. Yes. And that, and that is a problem for small children. It's a problem for, for dogs, you know, the family pets and even cats. Uh, it can be a problem for them. So um, you got to be very, very careful. By the way, just a little bit of a heads up. Uh-oh. The most deadly mushroom that we have, the Ammonita varosa, is looks very similar to the white store-bought button mushroom. Hmm. Uh. So if, and, and they grow in lawns. They grow in people's lawns all the time. They grow oh, in I just roll those over. So, <laughs> yeah. so ch- chicken of the woods are are pretty easy to identify. Hen of the yeah. woods, uh, anything dangerous that's comparable to hen of the woods? They they no. seem pretty identifiable as well. Yeah, these are. This is why I did this book called the Safe 
six. It's six common edible mushrooms that you can't really confuse with other things. And, and that's, I mean, cause there's so many more. There's probably, uh, just ballparking here. There's probably 250 or so upwards of 300 edible species of mushroom out there. Uh, I, I zeroed in on these six. Out of five million? <laughs> yeah. the, the, the other thing that with the chicken of the woods that I noticed, um, you really got to cut, and this is true of pheasant backs too, you got to cut the the real young piece of this, the tender young um, it, it, like if you get it too big or close to the tree, yeah. then it's woody and it's just awful. Right, and you don't want to eat that part of of, of it. You want to eat the, the softer parts of it too. So, but you know, um, just talking a little bit about just kind of diving a little bit further into the poisonous aspects of this. Um, <laughs> when you see those, uh, you know, TV shows or movies where. You know, somebody is uh, fed a poisonous mushroom and, you know, they take two bites and then they grab their throat, they clutch their throat and they fall off their chair and they're dead, uh, is, is, is completely and totally untrue. Uh, in fact, most uh, mushroom poisonings don't show their first symptoms until uh, 48 to 72 hours after you've eaten the mushroom. Hmm. Then you die. So it's yeah. So it's like it's like two to three days later, and that's plenty of time where you don't even associate what you ate three days ago with what's going on. The problem with the ammonita uh, uh, toxin is that it it destroys your liver, and so the very first signs and symptoms that you get is liver failure. And the the treatment, the one and only treatment for this type of mushroom poisoning, is a liver transplant. So uh, it usually takes uh, most people who are, you know, elderly or young or uh, who have compromised immune systems and things like that will uh, will not survive this type of poisoning. So you got to be very, very careful with what you're doing. So we did have a call from uh, Phil wants to know if there are any um, hallucinogenic uh, entertaining mushrooms out there for people to, to <laughs> focus on. <laughs> yes, there are. And, uh, they, they tend not to grow in our area here, but the uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, the ones that produce this uh, hallucinogenic effect, not that I know anything at all about them, <laughs> are, are found out in uh, western United States. <laughs> okay, which you travel to frequently and... As, asking for, for a, a pound of, they are. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, I, I did find one at the base of an oak tree out at the cabin this summer, which has since been buried. But anyway. Yeah. What did it look like? Well, it was a, a real dusty gray, about half the size of a volleyball, yep. and it looked like it had petals coming out from it. That's the one. That's the hen of the woods. It looks like a hen. A bird crouched down at the base of an oak tree. Ah. Uh, that and that is, in my opinion, one of the best eating mushrooms out there. I can tell uh, you where it's buried. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so that that's also a saprophytic mushroom. It's breaking down the wood of that um, oak tree, huh. and uh, that's a, that's a species that's highly sought after, also, <laughs> and uh, and and well well worth the time and, and effort. And you really can't confuse it with anything else. By the way, uh, just a special note, uh, we've been talking about these mushrooms that, that break down wood and are, are you know, parasitic in nature. Uh, it should be noted that most trees, uh, you know, most tree species have what's called a mycorrhizal relationship with fungi. This is a mutually beneficial 
relationship between the fungi and the tree, where the roots of the tree are growing under the ground and the uh, mushroom, the fungi, is growing and encasing or covering the roots. Hmm. And they exchange nutrients back and forth, mutually beneficial. Studies show that trees that grow with this mycorrhizal relationship grow taller, stronger, and faster than, uh, than trees without it. Are there fung- fungi that are used in medicine? Like, is the secret to curing cancer going to be found in fungi? Well, who knows? I mean, we're, look at penicillin. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a, you know, that's a, it's a mold type of fungi. And uh, look what that did to the world. So it, it can be uh, something pretty remarkable uh, out there. Okay, I'm I'm going to switch topics and totally because Bob, Bobby has a question that we need to get to. I'd like to get to before we run out of time. Sure. And if we have time, we'll go back to mushrooms, of which I've already <laughs> forgotten the one I buried. Um, but I do know what it looks like now. But it'll never come back. Anyway, um, Bobby says that he has a book that said something about the American robin, and he said it has a reputation as a harbinger of spring, which we all agree, and spends the winter in the northern latitudes, leaving open fields and lawns for the deep woods. Also says that when snow and ice cover the ground, robins take to the woods to forage for fruits and berries, and even has a map that shows Minnesota as its winter range, but that other people have told him that they're not a winter bird and feed mainly on insects, and he was always told that, too, until he read the book, and wondering which is accurate. Okay, first and foremost, range maps do not show density, or populations, they just show the possibilities of the range. Okay. Um, and so uh, 99%, or I shouldn't say 99, but the vast majority of our robins will migrate out of, you know, the upper Midwest. But there is a small percentage, maybe upwards of 10%, that will stay behind and will eke out a living eating berries and uh, fruits uh, deeper in the woods. Uh, so it's a small, small percentage of them that do it. The vast majority of them leave. Now, are they true migrators? No. They only go down to places like Kansas or Oklahoma or Missouri or wherever it may be, Arkansas, and they spend their winters there. Unlike, say, for example, our hummingbirds or our orioles or our warblers, those are true migrators that go all the way down to the tropics and spend their winters there and then come back. The robins are more of a... In years where there's not as severe winter, they won't go as far. In years that there is more severe winter, they'll go a little bit further. So they kind of move around and adapt to the area. So they, it's interesting, the genus and species name for Robin is um, Turtus migratoris, and it, to indicate that it is the migratory species, and, and you really couldn't find a worse example of, of, a, <laughs> of, a, of you know, of a migratory bird because yeah sure they'll move but they're not gonna, they're not a real true migrator. Huh, interesting. Well, I've still got hummingbirds around the lake stand. I've got a whole bunch of them as of Monday. Yeah, so do I. Um, which is interesting and uh, and good to see uh, them hanging around. But I suspect at any time now, when the weather conditions are, cr- are right and there's a nice strong north wind, they're going to go. Yeah, pack their bags. Hey, my friend, I appreciate your time as always. And are you going to be out and about anytime soon? 
Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm out today at uh, at a children's book festival in Red Wing, Minnesota, at the Anderson Art Center. I'll be there from noon to five today. Uh, that's a free open to the public uh, program, I believe. And uh, so that's and then tomorrow, Hawk Ridge. I'll be up to, uh, watching the birds at Hawk Ridge tomorrow. So, well, enjoy, my friend. We will uh, catch up in a couple of weeks, Dan. Sounds good, guys. Take care. Excellent. That's Stan Tequila. Find him at NatureSmart.com. How long ago did you bury that hen in the woods? Think it's still good? I have no idea. I took a shovel and went underneath and got the top of it off, and I didn't want my dogs to eat it. Turns out I should have kept it yeah. in myself. Maybe a side dish for the grouse we get today. <laughs> okay, I'll, maybe I'll hurry right up and dig it up and then you well, can have the Maybe we'll find another one. Maybe. I now know what they look like. Hey, we'll be right back with Tackle Terry. Hang on, Pat Micheletti. He's coming. He's coming. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Well... It is time for Tackle Terry Tuma, and Tackle, I understand you're not fishing on the river, therefore you must be swimming, or are you scrubbing? Well, I'll tell you, good morning to you guys, and good morning everyone. Hey, we got some uh, thunderstorms growing through, and some pretty heavy rain, which oh, is welcomed, of course, but uh, uh, it does uh, subside the fishing for now. Anyway, we'll see what happens down the road here in a couple of hours. You know, you can't mess around on the, on water with the thunderstorms if there's lightning attached to them either, Terry. No, you can't, and it is lightning, So, and then uh, the wind uh, has quieted down, but some pretty heavy rain, but the lightning is exactly right, and it's... Uh, we've, you know, we've all seen that. We've all witnessed it. And, uh, you just have to use common sense and do not go out on the water. I... And we can have some major changes with a thunderstorm rolling through, like just through. All of a sudden, the winds can really pick up, too. So you just have to pay attention to what Mother Nature is telling us. I totally agree, Terry. I mean, I, I've been there where I was close to a strike, not knowing any better. And it, um, lucky to be alive, honestly. Hmm. Because uh, well, there was not too many years ago, it, it hit a, an aluminum boat and blew the guys right out of it and killed them. Oh yes, uh, it, you, you're exactly right. I know a couple of uh, incidents on Malak, for instance, where you know that was was definitely the case. And here again, too, it's just you know I always tell uh, anglers, you know, no fish is worth that kind of uh, uh, should we say a tragedy or going out and trying to you know catch fish under those kind of conditions because it just it just doesn't pay and you know I think a lot of us most of us have been caught when uh, a fast approaching thunderstorm where we didn't realize it was coming uh, so quickly or maybe we're in a bay where we couldn't see uh, the uh, sky with the uh, you know thunderstorms approaching and we get caught in that I think we all have been caught I know I sure have well you don't have to go real far either but uh, up on Lake of the Woods, I know when we were with John a couple of years ago, Gerd came up out of Borderview. He had said that you can have a storm in one part of the lake and you can get up and run away from it. But one of the one of the keys I always use, and this comes from experience also, but if you're holding your rod in the air, the tip of your rod in the air, and you hear it hissing, or your monofilament line wants to float, just like a feather it would be floating up and down, or your line starts to bubble on the reel, you'd better get the heck out of Dodge because a buddy of mine who's a science teacher told me that the ions are polarizing and they're getting ready to strike right where you are. 
Well, that's exactly right. And you hear those comments. In fact, I maybe had mentioned it some time ago, but I know in anger, he thought it was sort of cool. His uh, hair on his arms was starting to stand yeah. up. You know, <laughs> that's not too cool as far as I'm concerned. That's time to, you shouldn't even be on the water when that's taking place, but for heaven's sakes, get off. Yeah, yeah, totally agree, Terry. Um, you know, sometimes the fishing is wild just before a storm comes through, too, but you're right, no fish is worth that. No, it really isn't. You know, and I think so often, too, we hear the comment, well, you're going to have some very good fishing, you know, prior to the storm, which is true, or prior to a rain, but right after, especially walleye fishing, uh, you can have a tough bite for a couple of three hours. Yeah. No, I, I do agree, Terry. And, you know, we were on a, we were on a real hot bite prior to a storm coming through Minnetonka. And as we raced off the lake and got into a restaurant, had lunch and, a couple of uh, adult beverages and went back out. It was a long rest of the day because they it, it was more than a couple hours. It was until we got around the trailer we didn't get bit. Yeah, well, and that that happens too. And I, I think so often too. You know, uh, really, what happened? I don't think it, you know. Is it the? It's some uh, obviously it's weather related, of course. But uh, you know, usually uh, you can have a, a, a really a tough bite, and but also too, if you work at it and you start to move around, what we have to understand is these fish become extremely negative, and so you therefore then you have to use those negative approaches of how to catch those fish. Yeah, and uh, what if we're getting into fall pattern pretty quick? I mean, it's got to kind of go back and forth with the heat that's heating up now, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does, and I think what's happening uh, is, is, Bill, that, you know, what we're seeing is that these fish are really, uh, you're sort of like us, you know, wondering what's really happening here, but now uh, the forecast is for a cooler temperature, so once we get this water temperature sort of stabilized, you know, going up and down, if you will, uh, then we're going to start to see a pretty good fall pattern, which is a prime opportunity to catch fish. But here again, too, you know, we really need to uh, focus on locations and the type of bush for whatever species we're fishing. Does that mean we're not going to catch fish under these kind of conditions? Absolutely not. If we work at it, we are going to catch fish. Um, yeah, the water. The water I noticed when I was at the lake last week too is really getting clear, compared compared to the murky and kind of the dark stain that it had prior during the real hot part of the summer. But as this water clears up, does that help fishing or hinder it, Terry? I think it, uh, it really. I don't know if it has any effect on it, Bill. Uh, to be honest with you, sure, the dark water, you know, it's, depending on what species we're fishing for, it can be a plus factor. But what we really have to do is just sort of adjust to those circumstances, and you can have some very good fishing, you know, in clear water. We just have to take advantage of, you know, where are these fish? Are these uh, you know, wanting to go into more of the uh, time frames of biting, you know, is it early morning, late evening hours, is it at night for, like, for instance, walleyes, or, you know, late, late evening for walleyes, uh, then what we have to do, too, is, you know, consider cover at this time of the year, uh, the depth of the water at this time of the year, these are all major factors. We so often when we start to run into these kind of time frames, we make the assumption that all these fish are moving shallow, which is not the case. Well, it seems like uh, the the frogs are moving too. Um, yeah, I've driven around lakes and frogs are moving out of the water uh, or out of the lakes into the swampier areas. Are you um, are you focusing on fishing frogs right now because of the, the that migration? 
Well, not necessarily. I think watching, you know, you hear, you know, anglers, and I've done that many, many years ago, you know, actually catching frogs and fishing for bass and walleyes, which is extremely productive. But what this does is tells us now that these fish are going to start to move into the shallows Mm -hmm. and start to feed on frogs. So that's a sign of where we should start fishing and many times what should we use under these kind of conditions. But it's a sign of that fall pattern and it's a sign that that it's going to be, you know, not a real long time frame of these uh, frogs making this migration, but it is a time frame where you're really, in a sense, where it's Mother Nature's telling us, you know, what's really happening out there. And it is a time for both walleyes and bass to start to make that movement, and we should be right on top of it. Uh, there was a time that I used to go out and catch frogs and put them in a minnow bucket and take the inside out with the holes in the bottom mm-hmm. and then reach in and grab a frog and put it on a weedless hook and hook it through the lips. But I have since quit because I felt so bad when yeah. they put their front legs over the hook, over the the eye of the hook, and try to get that hook out. Well, well you can do the same thing with scum frogs nowadays. Right? Yeah. I mean, just artificials. But do you, most of the time, I've always thought about using um, you know scum frogs or replicas in the midsummer. But with how many frogs I'm seeing moving right now, and it's got to be a great time to try to replicate them. And and I think that what Terry says, I would agree with, and the, the evenings are the times, mm-hmm. at least the old stories, and it was before me, which is hard to believe. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the old guys would sit on beaches, on sand beaches, and throw the frogs out and let them sit on the bottom hmm. for walleyes, because they'd move in. These big walleyes would come in to feed. Hmm. And, and, you know, uh, and Bob, you're right, though, you know, with the artificial uh, frogs that are out there today, they're so realistic mm-hmm. that uh, you can definitely use those. And I agree with you, too, Bill. It's hard to take that frog and hook it through the lips oh. and watch it out there. Yeah. <laughs> and how many times have you, um, you know, tried to hook that frog and all of a sudden it got away from you, right? Well, yeah, and then they're hopping around the boat forever, too. But right. They, they, they have more of a tendency to gut hook a fish to me. Yes, I, I think you're exactly right. And then also, too, I think so, uh, so often, too, we have a tendency to react maybe sometimes too quick so we miss the fish, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's two, shall we say, formulas there. But, you know, even at, the, you know, when you run at this time of the year, you know, we don't, you know, the frog uh, run sure is extremely productive, you know, but we can also use, you know, crankbaits at this time of the year, very productive for both bass and walleyes, uh, casting them for uh, walleye fishing, uh, trolling them. Uh, trolling crankbaits or casting crankbaits, and there's numbers of ways of um, uh, trolling crankbaits. In fact, I just done a seminar, and someone was asking me about a three-way swivel rig. What is it, and how can you use it? And, you know, that's another opportunity for anglers to really control their depth, their specific locations of where these crankbaits are at. And, you know, so we have a lot of opportunity to work with a lot of different baits in it, but but the fall fishing patterns are very, very productive, and many times quality and quantity really take hold. Yeah, Terry, it used to be that you know people would say that use big crankbaits in the fall because the forage has grown up. But I don't care how big the forage grows to be, there's always little ones, and sometimes you just have to experiment and find out what's working. Well, that's exactly right. You know, you know, like for, you know, and it's you know, say for instance, just 
you know, crankbaits. It can be, you know, the size of the crankbait, the profile of the crankbait, the color, rattles or no rattles. How fast are you trolling? What are you doing with casting? You know, so often you'll see anglers, you know, just cast, uh, you know, right up against the shoreline and retrieve it right straight back. Same steady retrieve. You know, steady, instead of casting at angles, instead of making repeated casts. And that's something that we have to address. And, you know, here we go again. The color is a factor at this time of the year. Yeah. I agree. Terry, we got to take a break. I will uh, say goodbye and wish you good fishing, my friend. Well, thank you so much. And let's hope the thunderstorm, the rain is welcome, but the thunderstorms can stay away. There you go, buddy. Have you got your rain gear? Yes, I do. Okay, just checking. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys. (laughs) Let's tackle Terry. Uh, Rain gear and all. Remember the time he didn't have rain gear and sitting out fishing in the rain? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, duh. Anyway, we'll take a pause and come back with one more segment of Fan Outdoors. And there are people that agree, and I haven't seen anybody that disagrees. And John and Heidi, well, I might have an answer for you. I have an opinion. I'm not sure if it's an answer, but I'll share that too. And it has to do with fishing in the front of the boat and swimming underneath. That would be tackle. Swimming underneath the boat. We'll be right back. Something to do today on a pretty hot Saturday, and it could be raining where you are. It's but raining where we are. Is it? I'm looking outside, and it's raining and windy. It's not how I drew up the grouse opener. It is. It's not. It's not going according to plan already, Captain. I, I see that the 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 tremors have ceased. I don't know what that's I, all about. I don't know what to do now. The <laughs> the plan was to race home. That I've got everything in the truck except the dogs. Throw the dogs in the truck, and then north I go. But uh, I'm not sure now. I spent a lot of time just driving around in the rain. I, I, I spent some time napping in the truck <laughs> did, during the I, rain. Okay. I could do that today. I drive up north and then just take a truck nap in the woods. Yeah, I might not the worst thing in the world. Today. Um Hey, if you're looking, if you are looking for something to do, one of the good times to be had is up at Grand Casino off Malax, where the Bassmaster Angler of the Year Championship is taking place. They've had two days 
of the event. And today is an off day, but all the anglers will be hanging out, hmm. signing autographs and doing seminars and, and all kinds of really fun stuff. And I imagine they'll have some of their boats around get a chance to look at it. But uh, Minnesota's own and my my friend, um, in fact, a, a young man, he's not a young man anymore, he's 32, but he's kind of setting the world on fire and definitely making his way in the professional world of fishing and the world of professional fishing. Mr. Seth Fighter is in 12th place right now, and um, I think he has had higher aspirations, having won the event last year, but his primary focus this time was to firm his place in the Bassmasters Classic, the invite that is uh, that he was there. He's right now, I believe, in 13th place overall. Hmm. So he will definitely get an invitation to the... So what's uh, the cutoff for that? I think it's 39. Oh, okay. And who's who's in first right now? In right Lacks? now in first is Keith Combs. And Keith is a Texas native, a big guy. But he had it figured out, and he's got an area that had fish. He's got, yesterday he weighed 24.15, and he has an overall weight of 49.14. Hmm. Seth's weight... Yesterday was twenty two one, and he has an overall weight of forty four nine. So he needs a big day coming up, but the weather is changing, and uh, things could be good. So he he definitely knows, and he thinks he's found some big fish. Hmm. And but the fishing up there, I mean, these fish have been fished hard for all summer long, and uh, since last year. So. In a, you can keep um, six fish for five. the bag, five fish. Five fish. Five fish a day. Yeah. And that uh, makes up your bag, and that's right. the way. Okay, so he's he's uh, five pounds behind yep. with uh, one day to go. Yeah, and, you know, he finds these five or six-pound fish. If he can put those in a boat, it's doable. It's going to be tough. It'll be mm-hmm. a long road. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely doable. And and But today is a day that they're all going to be around. So if you are a bass angler and would like to... To head up and talk to these men and and just kind of get a sense of what it is all about. This is the elite of the elite bass anglers. They're very good, and Seth, of which is one of them, having success, and he'll he'll make his living doing this. And it's not all roses. I mean, there's a lot of driving across country pulling a boat, mm. and, but. There are people there ahead of won millions of dollars in prize money, and then their sponsor monies come into play too. So they're uh, making a very, very good living, but they're working hard. So changing gears on you real quick. Yeah. Uh, so for the first time in the nine and a half years I've done radio with you, yeah. my wife Meredith woke up at the same time and got up and got dressed and left the house. I, I know it's shocking at 5 a.m., because she's working, uh, she works part time with the Wild, and today is the um, the water collection day. For... Now, did they run through some? They run into some issues about collecting water because you can't transport water in Minnesota from lakes. I don't know. Uh, that's but... against the law. I mean, you have to drain your 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 boat, and you can't transport minnow water from one body of water to the other. You're catching me cold. Maybe they're going to have DNR officers there. I, I don't. I would. Think I think that, that they, they checked on that. Well, I know that they're um, filtering all of them. 
all the water samples that they uh, they collect today. But um, I don't know, Captain. But I know that uh, my wife is there collecting water at the X this morning. <laughs> Maybe she won't be home. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe she's going to get a DNR ticket, huh? I, I don't know, but huh. that is true. Yeah, I don't know how... Eric and I were just talking about that last night as we waited in the waiting room forever. Maybe there'll be zebra mussels in the XL Energy Ice this year. I, you know, as they skate and go over it, they look down, there's one, there's Piney Water Fleet. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> well, zebra mussel right here, guys. Yeah. Take your shot at the zebra. Good intentions gone awry. <laughs> But that is true. You can't huh. transport water. Well, you took that in a different direction I didn't think of. <laughs> it's just, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, um, the Bass Tourney Langer is at Malax Lake on that, um, at Grand Casino, and that's where it's taking place today. But the final day will be tomorrow. And you can also watch it live online and follow Bass Track, too, if you know. Seth is one of the guys that's the only guy from Minnesota. But you can follow it at Bassmaster.com or watch it live for a couple of segments on the computer. Great fun. Seth is the only guy from Minnesota? The only person from Minnesota Hmm. to fish the Bassmaster. What about uh, the biggest names in bass fishing, the the Van Dams and the Ike Canellis? Van Dam is there. uh, Kevin Van Dam is there. He's not... He's not, not in the running? Well, okay. But he is there. And I think he's fishing for a berth in the Classic. What about, uh, is it Iconelli? He's there. And he's not, he's doing okay. He was doing really, he fell down yesterday. Okay. And he's, he too is fishing for a chance to the Classic because they were, both of them were right on the bubble, I believe. Hmm. Are they the biggest names or is that just the biggest names I recognize? The, they are probably the biggest names. This is probably the most prestigious. There hmm. is the FLW Tour also. And they kind of divide the anglers up, but uh, the Bassmaster Elite is probably the cream of the cream, hmm. and it's amazing. These men can go; they have three days of practice prior to doing an event, and they fish it hard, um, and they're successful also. Hey, John and Heidi sent us an email to the uh, to the. Um, it's not not about water collection at the wild. It, it, it is not. Okay. It is not. Good, because you... <laughs> but he was fishing, so it's kind of about water. Oh, okay. I noticed a bird swimming underneath his boat that swam like a loon, but it didn't have the color of a loon. And, and your answer would be the same as mine, which was... A juvenile loon, probably. Yeah. Probably uh, just hasn't colored out yet. Yeah. And there's a lot of juveniles out there that haven't maintained, haven't gotten their adult coloring. The hummingbirds at the cabin don't look like real hummingbirds. And yet. if I'm recalling a past conversation with Stan, don't uh, when when loons spend their time in Florida, they don't have the same coloring down there that they do up here. I okay. I, don't I think know. they we, we can double check that with Stan, yeah. but I believe they change. Um, they molt. And Dave sends us an email also regarding my. Um, uh, my talk about the invasive species on in Wright County, and said that a lot of people and the the the, the participation of lakeshore owners is voluntary up there, and he says that they've really missed the boat. These people up there with this proposal of check cleaning your boats before you put in and not taking when you come out, they don't have to do anything with docks or boat lifts. Right. And they transport a bunch of stuff from one lake to the other that are still attached and put it in the water. So 
you need to follow those rules. So if they, they don't, don't try to fool me because you don't give a dang about anything else with invasive species. You want to keep people off your lake. Is your boat winterized? My pontoon is winterized. My boat is not. It okay. is in the garage. I've got the opposite. Fishing boat is winterized. Oh. Pontoon is still on the water. Yeah, mine is off, and uh, the lift needs to come out soon. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And I was just, as I talked to Eric last night, we'll probably bring, he's going to bring his boat up the lake for the pheasant opener because. Uh, if it if it is warm as it has been in years past, mm. might be a good time to, especially for duck season where it closes at four o'clock, be going out and doing some fishing and and because uh, uh, the walleyes are starting to bite again. <laughs> Look at you, I M- Mr. Walleye. Yeah, I know. It was great fun. It was fun. <laughs> but like I said, you can only I can only catch them one way. After that, I'm all done. Yeah. <laughs> and the leeches are gone, so I'm probably done fishing. Hey, that means time for In the Zone. Sinekin and Tucker coming up next right here on The Fan. I want to say thanks to Tackle for joining us and also especially to uh, Mr. Stan Tequila. So for Bob St. Pierre, and I'd say for Tony, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Thanks for that. <laughs> I'll just say thank you and see you next Saturday, everybody. Until then, be good, be safe, and catch some fish. Shoot a grouse. Good luck on the archery opener, too. Have fun. Everybody take care. Bye-bye now.